Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the lives and legacies of the Koch brothers. Now, you may have heard that David Koch died recently, and I took that as a signal that it would be a good time to do sort of a wrap-up of the reporting on his life and legacy. Um, but what I actually found surprised me. It turns out that a brand new book on Koch Industries had come out only about 10 days before David's death, Therefore, everyone who wanted to talk about the significance of David's death called the author of the book, Cokeland, Christopher Leonard. Well, it turns out that David was, by sort of a long stretch, the more vestigial Koch brother. He primarily lived as a philanthropist billionaire. You know, he was involved in, in the political side. Uh, but his brother Charles was really the driving force behind the Koch empire and everything else. So... In an effort to learn about the life of David, what I ended up with was effectively a book report on Cokeland, which is almost entirely dedicated to the life and efforts of not David, but Charles. So, you know, this show is funny that way. I often set out with a plan for my research, but then the research itself ends up taking me in new and interesting directions. So in that sense, it's normal. It's just that this time it took me more by surprise than usual. You know, you set out to research one specific person and you end up with a whole show on a different person. Obviously related, but you see what I mean? So that's what I have for you today. But before we get started, just a reminder that if you want to support the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We are in particular need of new members right now. The Trump era has hit us in two very different yet related ways. He first spurred the creation of a whole swath of new progressive media, which was great, but still sort of naturally caused a bit of extra competition for supporters and donations among independent uh, progressive media outlets. But then the unexpected thing happened when Trump fatigue syndrome kicked in. You know, people were really energized for a short period at first, but inevitably exhaustion began to set in. And so we started with this huge surge of listenership that has since almost entirely trailed off. So at a time when it's reasonable to expect that progressive media must be doing well, it's actually unexpectedly struggling. Uh, in fact, many of those new shows I mentioned that popped up in the wake of Trump didn't make it, and they no longer produce new content. And we plan to be here for the long haul, but only with the sustaining support of members in both good and bad times. So if you get value out of the show, and especially if you have for a long time, and you can afford a few dollars a month to support it, please sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now on to the show. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Real News Network, Start Making Sense, The Chauncey DeVega Show, The Majority Report, and Live from Politics and Prose. First, explain your title, Cokeland, and then talk about how they have weighed in at this point. We ended the last conversation by talking about the Koch's relationship and their feelings about Donald Trump, and you can start there. Absolutely. So Cokeland refers to, first of all, the institution itself. I've been a business reporter for 20 years. I've never seen anything like this in my life. 
Charles Koch has written this detailed code of, of life called market-based management. And he says it's the best way to run a company, best way to run a country, best way to run your personal life. The people inside this institution absorb this creed totally. They speak it, their own vocabulary. And it, it's like its own little world, Cokeland. It is sort of Charles Koch's utopian, uh, perfect society. But of course, there's a bigger picture here as well. The United States more and more is reflecting what life is like inside that corporation. So I, I feel like we're becoming Cokeland more and more all the time. And, and this issue of climate change is a really important example. You know, as we said earlier, and we can talk about this, the, the Koch network is opposed to Trump in many respects. On the issue of climate change, they're, they're working hand in hand. And I think that that's deeply significant. I say in the book, you know, if Donald Trump has a genius, it is the genius of reading a room. He knows what people want to hear. He knows what, what works with his crowds. And you see him again and again repeating this rhetoric that climate change is a hoax. You said earlier in this program, you had his comments that windmills cause cancer, that windmills are a hoax, and this kind of thing. Coke Industries played a super important role in injecting that concern into a real grassroots movement in, in 2010 with the Tea Party movement. Tea Party voters were super angry at what they saw as a rigged system that gave bailouts to Wall Street. Coke would hold rallies. Coke would help them organize. But when they attended those rallies, Coke would give them the message, regulating greenhouse gases is a form of tyranny. And they've really reshaped the debate in Republican politics. And I, see, I think you see Donald Trump responding to that. And if I could please make one point about renewable energy like windmills. You know, Donald Trump was just promoting liquid natural gas from fracking. The federal government subsidized fracking for decades through basic research, tax breaks, all the rest of it. The federal government built the fracking business. But now that the federal government wants to stoke competition to fossil fuels with uh, windmills or solar, it's crony capitalism, so to speak, and the Coke Network is seeking to destroy it. Now, go back to the family's history and how exactly David and Charles Koch got to dominate, um, become these oil barons. In fact, they were two of four brothers. That's right. The, the Koch families lived in Wichita for, for since the beginning, essentially. And Fred Koch was the guy who started this company. Fred Koch owned some oil refineries, ranches, engineering things. It was kind of this motley assortment of assets. And Fred Koch was a vehement um, conservative, if you will, right wing. He was a co-founder of the John Birch Society, which was a secret society that truly felt that the federal government had been infiltrated by communists and that the sort of New Deal programs uh, like supporting labor unions, Social Security and all the rest of it were a communist plot uh, to in increase uh, tyranny in the United States. That's the kind of political rhetoric that would have been spoken around the Koch uh, dinner table when, tr uh, when Fred Koch's four children were growing up. There was Charles and two twins, David and Bill, and then the oldest son, Freddie. Freddie never wanted to have anything to do with the business. Um, the younger brother, Bill, tried to take over the business and was forced out. And that left David and Charles in control of this corporation. And to their credit, following the strategy of Charles Koch, they were patient, they're brilliant, 
They built a corporate empire over 50 years that is unrivaled in America. They're, they're not dumb people, and they're certainly not lazy. Uh, but it was their ownership of this company that made them the richest people among the richest people in America. And they didn't go public, which was extremely significant, as you write about. Um, they could have made a fast, well, to say the least, millions of dollars, but refused. Explain why. It's one of the most fascinating parts of the story. The book opens in 1981 when some bankers from J.P. Morgan come to Wichita, try to convince Charles Koch to go public. He would have gotten $20 million that day if they'd gone public, but he refused. And that's because Charles Koch has a very specific vision of how to run a corporation. When you stay private, first of all, you keep control. But second of all, you're not answerable to shareholders who are banging on your door every three months for your quarterly reports. Now, this allowed Coke Industries to think on a long-term horizon. And I think this is important for anybody to study and anybody to think about, because long-term strategic thinking is in desperately short supply in America today. This is a corporation that thinks on a horizon of two, five, ten years out. And that has given them a remarkable ability to outperform the competition at every turn. One small example, in 2003, there were these massive nitrogen fertilizer plants in the Midwest that went belly up because of an energy spike in natural gas prices. Nobody wanted to buy these fertilizer plants. Coke swooped in, bought these plants for pennies on the dollar, knowing that things were going to turn around in two to five years. Today, those nitrogen fertilizer plants are among the most profitable assets in Coke's portfolio. So that shows you why they kept it private. It is to maintain strategic control, secrecy, and to be able to think long term. Today, David Koch, one half of the incredibly powerful, both in a political and economic sense, Koch brothers, uh, passed away. His death comes after he stepped down from his corporate and political roles for health reasons back in June of last year, having been diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer almost three decades ago. Politically, this is obviously incredibly important because he and Charles Koch have been incredibly influential, as I implied earlier. Uh, massive donations of their own to a number of different political causes and politicians, uh, organizing groups that had a massive effect on politics. Um, now, depending on where you are on the political spectrum, uh, the impact of that, you could view it as positive or negative. We'll see how the panel comes down on that. Um, but I have a number of different facts about both their political philosophy and also just some interesting facts about David Koch as well. Uh, I did want to mention, just because I had never known this, but he actually was once on the presidential ballot. Uh, back in 1980, as the nominee for vice president for the uh, Libertarian Party, I, I actually uh, have mentioned that a couple of times because he ran against Ronald Reagan. Oh. If you can't beat him, buy him. Oh, great point, Dan. That from is the a good internet. point. Um, so uh, why don't we get into their political philosophy a little bit? Uh, if you've somehow gotten this far in American politics without knowing who they are and what they stand for, Charles and David Koch worked together closely in their decades-long effort aimed at rolling back environmental and business regulations and at voting Democrats out of office. Dating back to the 1970s, they helped found and fund libertarian organizations. But in the ensuing decades, they shifted their efforts uh, towards more straightforward support of Republicans. It was during President Barack Obama's administration that the Kochs dramatically escalated their political activity and became two of the most 
most important political funders on the right. Now in terms of what their efforts were toward, Kochs are longtime libertarians who believe in drastically lower personal and corporate taxes, minimal huh. social services for the needy, and much less oversight of industry, especially environmental regulation. One section from Paul Mason's Clear Bright Future says that David Koch called for the abolition of the federal authorities regulating air transport, electoral law, environmental protection, food standards, and the energy grid, together with all state privatization of education, basic health care, and retirement pensions. And so, I mean, we're talking about basically every aspect of life. They had a view on how the government should get out of it effectively. And you guys are gonna be shocked to find out that view happened to coincide with their financial interest. But it's just a wild coincidence. Speculation. I mean, unbelievable coincidence. So look, I think that the reporting has gotten a little bit better during the Trump era. I think that in the past, if one of the Koch brothers had passed away, most of the news organizations wouldn't have even necessarily pointed out how tilted they were against the Democratic Party. I mean, to say the least, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to defeat Democrats and elect Republicans. I think that it would have been a passing mention. They would have talked about their charity otherwise more. And even within the political landscape would not have been as clear. So they were fairly clear in a lot of the articles, but still not good enough. Because one of the things they're doing is feeding into the propaganda that the Koch brothers have some sort of philosophical libertarian principles and that that's what's driving them. No, corruption is driving them. So there's a wonderful book, Cokeland, you should check out. And in Cokeland, they explain, and I actually covered the story a long time ago when it first came out. We've been around forever. So not when it first first happened, but when the details of it came out again. In the in the beginning of Coke Industries, which is one of the largest private industries, private companies in the in, in the country and in the world, um, one of the things they got busted for was stealing oil from Native Americans. So they were supposed to buy the oil from Native Americans, and they did, but they would systematically rig it so that they uh, it read lower number than what they were actually getting, and they ripped them off of tens of millions of dollars. When they were caught back then, and this is decades ago. There was actually a democracy and a functioning government. So there was some chance that there was gonna be not only civil penalties, but criminal penalties. They might even go to prison, because if you steal 10 bucks in the street, you're gonna go to prison. Mm-hmm. If you steal $10 million, you should still go to prison, right? And this is how they built their empire based on greed, avarice, etc. So they realized during that, oh, if we don't wanna go to prison, we should buy off government officials, because they're the ones who run the government. So they started contributing. And right around then is when the Supreme Court started to change the laws and saying you actually can start giving independent expenditures, campaign contributions, etc. So one of the first politicians that they bought off, I mean, gave campaign contributions to was Bob Dole from their home state of Kansas. And then they went purchased a senator from Oklahoma because their main criminal case was in Oklahoma. Another wild coincidence. I mean, there's 49 other states other than their home state. They happened to pick the one state where the uh, senator could affect their own criminal case. Charles Koch was actually the brilliant one. So David, the one who died, is you know this was his brother, and I I don't have any idea of David's intelligence, and I don't want to speak to that. But Koch, Charles Koch, came up with a plan of, oh, if we want to just be crooks, why don't we buy off the cops? And so basically the government being the cops in this case, they went on to not only purchase whole senators, almost the entire 
Senate and definitely the entire Republican version side of the Senate. But they went on to then create think tanks to create policy papers about libertarian principles, i.e. tax cuts, and I don't have to pay my employees and I could poison the environment. And set up a giant infrastructure in Washington DC meant to profit themselves because of corruption. That's the actual story of the life of David and Charles Koch. I really sincerely believe Coke Network is more powerful today than it's ever been. And it's only going to continue to be. Here's the issue, though. They operate in a certain space. They operate where government is actually happening. When I started this book, I thought the political chapters would be a lot about super PACs and campaign contributions. That's not where the action is. All of the action begins the day after the election. The infrastructure of American political power where things actually get done, the state legislatures, the court system, the federal appeals court system, of course, the big center of power, Congress, the Senate and the House in Washington, D.C., the enormous administrative state, OSHA, EPA, the Commodities Future and Trading Commission. This is the world where Coke is operating every single day to influence public policy. And so, I mean, you talk about where their hands are. This is an example that's coming to my head right now is the tax code. This is a huge monumental generational story that Coke had a tremendous influence on, but nobody knew about it because the political coverage is all about red team, blue team, who yelled at who, who said what. Meanwhile, underneath, Donald Trump said after he was elected, he was going to reform the tax code. This was a Republican priority for a generation, and they were finally going to do it. There was one element to the tax reform plan that was, quote unquote, Trumpian, and it was making this border adjustment to the corporate income tax. And again, just saying that border adjustment to the corporate income tax, very important, again, because it's a Coke space. It's complicated. It matters a lot. It's hard to handle. If Trump had made this one change of border adjustment to the corporate income tax, it could have dramatically stimulated economic production inside the United States. You know who was pushing the border adjustment tax, as we call it, was Paul Ryan, saying this is the made in America tax. But it posed a severe both short-term and long-term threat to the United States oil industry. And it posed a particular threat to Coke Industries refinery in Minneapolis, which runs entirely off of imported crude oil and makes a mint doing it. But they make a lot of money and they have for decades. And if the border adjustment had kicked in, it would have dramatically threatened the profits of this oil refinery. But maybe even more important, it would have raised the cost of gasoline, which would have hurt demand for gasoline. And it would have stoked alternative energy sources like wind and solar. So that can't happen if you own massive oil refineries, pipelines, and these other assets Coke owns. Coke Industries, they tried to secretly fund a report on this, but the group called Brattle Group made Coke put their name on it, which was, I think, virtuous of Brattle Group. Not everybody does that. Coke was funding reports attacking the border adjustment tax within weeks of Donald Trump winning the presidency, way before people were talking about this stuff, way before this was even on the public radar, Coke was fighting it. Coke mobilized its army of volunteers, Americans for Prosperity, on this topic. They were mobilizing their allies in Congress to fight it. And in essence, they killed the border adjustment 
tax before it was ever even publicly debated. And that transformed U.S. tax policy. It directly led, directly led to the massive budget deficits we see today because the tax reform plan just turned into a tax cut. That's all it was, a giant tax cut. Then a long-term gain, as we certainly see. So if the Democrats inevitably at some point win and get everything back, the deficit's a problem, and then we have to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Just thinking about these networks of power, how did Charles Koch play the long game with establishing these think tanks and creating this type of influence machine? How did Charles Koch do this over so much time? Well, first of all, long-term strategy is baked into the cake at Koch Industries. It is central to their strategic DNA long-term thinking. Charles Koch has fought for decades to keep his company privately held because he knew if he was publicly traded, he'd have to start thinking about quarterly earnings and things like that. This is how they viewed things inherently from the beginning. When Charles Koch took over the company in 1967, and that's how he thought. So when he turned to politics, it made sense that he applied the same vision to it. And there was a speech he gave in 1974. Incidentally, he gave this speech to a think tank he created. And he lays out this four-point plan. Here's what we're going to do to transform American economic and political society. One of the tenets of the plan, one of the four points was funding those university chairs. The other one was lobbying. Then there was litigation. Four-point plan that they followed with incredible discipline over 40 or 50 years. And that's just how they think. And you talked about the shock doctrine. One of Charles Koch's earliest efforts was to co-found the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank. He co-founded it with this guy named Murray Rothbard. And I obtained a memo Murray Rothbard wrote in 1977 as he set out the strategic view of a libertarian think tank and a libertarian revolution. And he explicitly says, we need to fight for tax cuts to create deficits. And then when we have deficits, we need to fight to cut spending. And that's the only way you're going to make it happen. So it's definitely intentional. They knew what they were doing when they passed this massive tax cut in 2017 to bleed out reading. The deficits are overwhelmingly gigantic, but now creates the rationale to do what the ultimate goal really is for them, which is to cut back government programs, government regulators, and just the footprint of the federal government in general. Americans for Prosperity is talking about liberty and freedom all the time. And I think a lot of people associate freedom with voting. If you're this libertarian mindset, you don't necessarily always want the power of the vote to be in place because then people can vote as a majority to take money from other people for themselves. Murray Rothbard, that guy I mentioned, called it, you know, state sanctioned robbery. So you have to limit the power of people to expropriate wealth through democratic institutions. So they are not pro-democracy in that sense. Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies and in my own life. They're designed by over 100 real-life language experts to get you speaking your new language within weeks, and you learn through interactive dialogues so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent with the help of Babbel's speech recognition technology. 
Plus, the lessons are only 10 to 15 minutes, so they can be both engaging and convenient. And since it's 2019, Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. I've been using Babbel for my language lessons because I recognized exactly what Babbel claims. Their lessons are designed to get you started quickly, engaging in dialogue scenarios that you will actually use in real-life interactions. So if you're ready to start speaking a new language with confidence, go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it completely free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. Coke Industries is becoming a huge company. It's a fossil fuel company with a horrendous record for environmental violations. And it runs smack into the new regulations that are being imposed by the Environmental Protection Agency beginning in the 80s. The Cokes wanted to change those laws. The 1996 presidential campaign. To do that, they set their sights on influencing the Republican Party. It's 1996. They, uh, David Koch, has, at this point, goes from trashing conventional politicians to becoming the vice chair of, of Bob Dole's presidential bid on the Republican Party ticket. You'll get a better feel of who Bob Dole is and what he's all about. There was a big fight within the Republican Party at that time about whether or not Republicans should accept the reality of climate change and look to market-based solutions to fix it, or whether they should deny it. And one of the things that we know is that there was tremendous lobbying and advertising from the fossil fuel industry on the denial side. At the very time of that internal debate, the Kochs build a network of at least 17 think tanks and front groups to influence the entire political system often referred to as the Coctopus. The Cokes have created a multi-dimensional political apparatus to create a tectonic shift in American politics. The, the single most important thing to understand about the Koch network today is that it is uh, unparalleled in its complexity. Today, the Cokes fund a wide range of organizations, from the National Rifle Association, the Cato Institute, Heritage Fund, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Donors Trust, and the American Legislative Exchange Council. But its most powerful weapon is an organization called Americans for Prosperity. Americans for Prosperity is now the primary political front group that the Kochs founded and fund. It's just become a kind of a, a guerrilla army that is almost like a third party in the United States now. Housed in this office tower in Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from Washington, D.C., Americans for Prosperity strikes fear into the hearts of politicians. When Obama was elected, they emerged as the key force in driving the Tea Party. They grabbed it and they corporatized it. And appears on Fox News regularly. What we're going to have if this climate change legislation passes, uh, this cap and trade or gas prices through the roof. Today, the Koch's political apparatus spends hundreds of millions of dollars during elections. Thank you very much. Thank you. And puts out tens of thousands of TV advertisements to get their chosen Republicans elected. Hey, Hagan, taking care of Washington insiders. The largest purpose of that money was to change control of Congress, to change control of the presidency. 
to elect Republicans. All told, Coke money has gone to more than half of all senators and nearly 40% of all congressmen. While it's still not known exactly the total they spent in the 2016 election, it's estimated to have been more than a half a billion dollars. When the Cokes estimate how much they're going to spend, it's always sort of a dicey proposition because they end up raising and spending a lot more money than they say is for just overt partisan politics. And they say this is for issue-based advocacy. Either way, it's a huge increase from the $40 million Americans for Prosperity spent in 2010 to help Republicans win control of Congress during the midterms. In 2012, it had $400 million, um, which was well above anything it had had prior to that. And in 2014, they spent $290 million to help the Republicans win control of the Senate. You have sold West Virginia out. Families are suffering. We know that Americans for Prosperity, just to name one group, had run 33,000 ads in tight Senate races around the country. The Cokes also hold conclaves twice a year, inviting fellow billionaires and hitting them up for cash. That club grew from just a few members in 2003 to now 400 to 450 of the richest, most conservative businessmen and women in America. And it's attracted all kinds of important dignitaries, too. Including Supreme Court justices and Republican stars like Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Marco Rubio. This is a great day for energy independence. And Mike Pence, the current vice president. So you get, as a major donor, you get to spend a weekend chatting with the person who's going to be making policy that could drastically affect your bottom line. One of the key purposes of this political apparatus is to ensure that no legislation is passed to curb the burning of fossil fuels. The Kochs have gotten over 170 members of the House to take a pledge that they will never support any legislation that places a tax on carbon. So they, they screwed up the entire House of Representatives for, you know, years. The Kochs' influence on the Republicans on climate change is powerful. We had a period where a number of important Republican leaders, again, were coming to the fore saying this is real. By 2008, leading figures in the party, such as Mitt Romney, Senator John McCain and Republican House Leader Newt Gingrich were calling for action on global warming. Gingrich even appeared in this ad with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi calling for steps to be taken. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. And then there was tremendous pushback from the Americans for Prosperity, which, as many people know, is the Koch brothers-funded um, political movement. Indeed, in 2011, Gingrich renounced the ad. First of all, it's probably the dumbest single thing I've done in this <laughs> I think they saw that as a bigger threat than Al Gore or Bill Clinton or anything on the left. And unfortunately, you saw a number of Republicans that once supported climate action suddenly ratcheting that back. And Republicans refused to toe the line such as Bob Inglis, a conservative congressman from South Carolina, pay a heavy price. Inglis had become convinced that climate change was real. 
And so when the evidence was in front of his own eyes, he changed his point of view and he started speaking out about climate change. In 2010, when Inglis was running again for Congress, Americans for Prosperity swung into action during the primary. And he lost badly to a very underqualified candidate who the Koch uh, machine brought in. So he was, he was then uh, hung up in the public square as an icon of what happens when a Republican turns good on climate change. Were the Koch brothers always big donors to Republicans? The short answer to that is no. I'm thinking of a letter Charles Koch wrote in the 70s to the head of the Libertarian Party where he just expressed disgust. Charles Koch has been disgusted with Republicans since the 70s. He sees them as just as corrupt as Democrats in the sense that they support government intervention in markets. Charles Koch to back up a little bit, is really a hardcore ideologue who believes that government intervention in markets can only create more harm than good. He, he subscribes to these libertarian thinkers like von Mises and Hayek and people like that. So he's tried to stay away from Republican politics, but it was really around the 1990s and then the 2000s that Koch realizes They've got to have a place at the table in Washington. They've got to be involved. They're just too big to basically hide in Wichita. And so their strategy has been to transform the Republican Party. As Charles Koch put it at one of his seminars in the early 2000s, you know, the Democrats are a lost cause in their view, but they can push Republicans to embrace this libertarian, anti-government point of view. And that's what the Koch network has been patiently doing for decades. The striking thing to me is that even though the Koch brothers and the network they founded have donated hundreds of millions to Republicans over the last decade or two, they haven't been as successful as you might think. They did everything they could to keep Obama from being elected and then reelected. But, of course, they failed at that. And they opposed Trump in the Republican primaries in 2016. They really did not want Trump to be president, and they failed at that. So I wonder if you have any comment on that. I totally do, and it's such a great point, and I think about this a lot. I mean, you know, first of all, nobody's invincible. And, you know, part three of this book is called Goliath. Well, you know, Goliath got beaten. And, and I don't want to portray the Cokes as these all-seeing geniuses who are invincible by any stretch of the imagination. But I do want to say two key things. Koch's political activities are torn straight from the playbook of how they trade commodities. That's why you see all these shell companies and all these efforts to hide Koch's fingerprints. But for that reason... Look, the White House really matters, and Coke, the Koch Network knows that. But they know that there's a lot of other stuff that matters, and their real expertise, their real emphasis is on the machinery of government that is not just a high-profile, every-four-year White House election. Koch has built a map of American political power that includes the state legislatures, the court system, very particular uh, emphasis on the United States Congress, and then, of course, the administrative agencies like EPA. Koch is engaged every day on sort of the 
subtextual level, on, on the subterranean level, of affecting policy there. And so when I see stuff like, you know, they lose the White House, they, they backed out of the White House race when Trump won, I think it obscures the fact that they're not as focused on the White House. They're focused on the everyday machinery of government. I think that's very true. But even with that in mind, the second thing I wanted to say is that you're, you're totally right. These are not complete masterminds. And the Koch network played a huge role in facilitating the Tea Party. They didn't invent the Tea Party. They didn't create the Tea Party. But they rode the Tea Party wave. What Trump showed is that the Koch network was misreading these voters. The Tea Party was not a libertarian movement. The Tea Party wasn't reading von Mises and Hayek like Koch is. Donald Trump came in and spoke directly to those voters about issues like immigration and uh, racial grievance and a rigged economy and even anti-billionaire stuff. And, and Trump took away those voters. Well, the big thing, of course, that the Koch operation was focused on, as you say, it was not immigration. It was not uh, Muslims in the United States. It was a carbon tax. And there is an important history to the politics of the carbon tax told in your book, Cokeland. And there's one reason I told this story, and that's because it was the front burner life or death lobbying issue for Coke industries for decades. It is not coincidental that Coke ramps up spending by a massive amount in 2008, because this is the time when true bipartisan support for regulating greenhouse gas emissions becomes a reality. It's hard to remember now, but back in 2009, the United States House of Representatives passed a massive bill that was a Republican idea, a Republican idea called cap and trade to put a price on, on greenhouse gas pollution because markets need prices to work and the cost of greenhouse gas emissions is going to be paid by everybody over decades. So this, this bill was trying to you know, put a price on putting that carbon into the sky at this time. And this was an existential threat to Coke's fossil fuels business, which is still a huge part of their portfolio. And so that's why they activated to derail the cap and trade bill successfully, I, have, I should add. And, and they continue to lobby against any efforts not just to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but to stimulate competition to fossil fuels in the form of solar and, and wind power. They're, they're very active in that space right now. Today's episode was sponsored by Madison Reed. Founded in 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door 
on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. He describes himself as a quote-unquote classical liberal. As I mentioned, he grew up in a house where his dad, Fred, was a co-founder of the John Birch Society. That was a secret society convinced that the American federal government was a communist front group, essentially, that communists had infiltrated the federal government. They were stealing liberty. Labor unions were a thuggish force to steal liberty and all the rest of it. So you can see how this view starts to shape Charles Koch's thinking, but he took it in a different direction when he's in college and he starts studying the work of these Austrian economists like Friedrich Hayek. And Ludwig von Mises is the big kahuna. Have you read von Mises's book, Human Action? I've read parts of it, and I've uh, spoken with Nancy McLean many times and tracked down some of her citations in her book. Von Mises says he's basically discovered the inner cogs and wheels that make humans function, and here's the blueprint of what it is, and you can interfere with it and tamper with it if you want, but you're only going to cause distortion. And so Charles Koch subscribes his view that basically the only way you can really organize society is around a voluntary market exchange system. Government is kind of like state-sanctioned thievery. The federal government, all it does is intervene in the free market exchange system. It steals money through coercion from one group of people, gives it to another group of people. It tries to distort the economic system, even with well-intentioned ideas, and it creates these massive distortions that cause far more problems than they solve. And to talk about the system Charles Koch would like, to get back to von Mises and human action a little bit, the sovereign power isn't the government, it's price. Von Mises says that people do what they really, truly value. I can tell you I value something, but I'm going to actually show you how I value it and how I prioritize it in my life. And so through this tug and push and pull of supply and demand, everything arrives at its true value or its price. Healthcare, roads, education, energy. And federal government only distorts that price when it intervenes. Medicare Put the fake price on healthcare in Charles Koch's view. That's destructive. It's toxic. It must be done away with. So his view of the United States would be to have a federal government that is basically scaled back to the size of what it was in like 1776. I'm not totally even sure what he would want it to do besides protect property. Or would there be a social democracy? Would there be a social safety net? What about if you're sick or if you're poor? Never mind with the birchers and civil rights. What does that world look like for him? So first of all, I've only an hour to sit down with this guy, and it's very hard to get to him. So I have to build my analysis around people who've worked with him for 30 years, people who have been his friend. You know, I interviewed his son. I've interviewed hundreds of Coke Industries employees. And here's what I take home. He's not a villain. He cares about people who are sick. He cares about people who are disabled and suffering. I truly think it is this unmovable view, however, that the solution to the problem isn't government. It's never government. So-called safety net with Medicare. 
you're only creating a massive market distortion that's going to hurt people in the long run. And I know from interviewing former Coke Industries executives, one thing they would say is churches are there to provide philanthropy for people. That's a voluntary form of philanthropy. If people really value safety nets, they provide it for others through churches, not coercion, but through churches. I feel like that's how he would answer your question. Leave it to the people to do it voluntarily. And what about the dysfunctions of the market and market externalities and imperfections in the market? There's the rub. That's when it all starts to fall apart. Let's just talk about market externalities. It's like this totally basic concept that a company is not going to do more than it has to do. And if a company that has a byproduct of mercury can pour it into a river for free, of course it's going to pour the mercury into the river for free. You have to put a price on the pollution to kind of discipline the company to deal with the pollution. There are just so many levels where this utopian libertarian vision, it just instantly breaks down when you start dealing with the real world. I need to hasten to add that my view, and I try to keep it out of the book. I really do. I try to just reflect what Charles Koch believes, what his political network believes, what his opponents believe. There's no question that if a voluntary exchange system created actual widespread prosperity and abundance, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. In the United States, from the Civil War up until about 1933, we experimented with this notion of stay out of it. Let the government stay at home, sit on its hands, and the big corporations will run everything. That era was a capitalistic free fire zone. It was horrible. People didn't keep the money they earned. People were dying in factories. Children were working. Pollution was rampant. The political system was totally destroyed by corruption. And so we created the New Deal under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The government intervened for a reason. And when it did, for the next 40 years, when the economy grew, the gains were actually shared broadly. One of the things that I've understood in terms of what came from Mount Pelerin, uh, which was sort of the, the the, 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 the nascent beginnings of a libertarian philosophy was that, in fact, it wasn't just simply about uh, the free market. It was about controlling the, the government apparatus to set up specific players in the industry. I mean, because, and, and, and as I've experienced it, you know, through the years and in, in seeing sort of the political end of this stuff, the idea is that government shouldn't pick winners and losers. But Everything the Koch brothers does in terms of the way they interact with government is about making sure that they get picked the winner. Is that tension? I mean, do you see that tension in, 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 in your reporting? So, I mean, that tension is everywhere. When you get down to the real deal, the business, how Koch makes their fortune, the politics breaks apart immediately, immediately. Um, and I, my, my, my brain is racing with examples right now. First of all, I would like to say that Coke and other companies really celebrate the fracking revolution. You know, hydraulic fracturing that has unleashed all these crude oil and natural gas supplies seen as sort of the savior of the free market. Fracking was created by the United States federal government. Fracking was a ward of the state for decades. It was kept alive through massive tax subsidies 
the government did the basic research. There were public-private partnerships at universities that figured out how to do fracking, and it was the, the private people that kind of came in at the end and commercialized it. So talk about picking winners and losers. Fracking only exists because of the U.S. taxpayer. But when taxpayers want to subsidize solar, wind, or other renewable energies, now it's crony capitalism. But the other example that comes to my mind is that Coke's bread and butter for decades has been oil refining, okay? And that business is so deeply enmeshed with the government, with subsidies, that there, there's no disentangling it. And, and I, I want to point out that oil refining is tremendously anti-competitive today. And one of the reasons, strangely enough, is the Clean Air Act. You know, the United States passed this clean air regulation back in the 70s, and we have not built a new oil refinery in the country since that time because the existing oil refineries, and this is all proven in the book, the existing oil refineries gamed the system. They gamed the regulatory system so that they could stay in business and basically block any new entrants through clean air regulations. What I'm saying is Coke's business benefits from government subsidies, government regulations, believe it or not, and the company wins because it is the entrenched status quo player in a lot of these businesses. So, so yes, I mean, it's not even like hypocritical. When you get down to the ground level, you just see that this is a firm operating deeply enmeshed with government programs all the time. Well, how do they, I mean, to the extent that and I know that you, you sat down with uh, Charles, I think, um, to, yeah. to, to the extent that, I mean, what, how do they respond to that? Like, I mean, how do they respond to that notion of because they've explicitly said, you know, government should not be supporting solar uh, energy and uh, government should not be, uh, you know, supporting wind energy. They should they should live or die in the marketplace. And and I would add not only uh, did the, the U.S. government essentially build fracking. But uh, for a long time and maybe it still exists statutorily, uh, things like. Well, you you don't have to uh, reveal what's in your fracking fluid, so folks yeah, have to yeah, just sort of exactly. randomly test for stuff to see if their drinking water contains, you know, chemicals that shouldn't be there, uh, which is a lot harder than people I think uh, probably imagine. Um, but what, what, how do they respond to that? That that uh, you know, tension is not really. It's only tension insofar as there's a, a, a pretense to this, right? I mean, it's, it's not tense yeah. if you just say like, yeah, no, uh, we go out and pretend like we don't want government influence and stuff because it's all working just for us. Here's how I would answer that. Here's how I think they respond. I, would, I put basically that question to Philip Ellender, the top lobbyist of Coke Industries. I was sitting interviewing him in their lobbying office a block from the White House in D.C. What he says to me is, you know, Chris, we don't have to be happy with the game, but we're going to play by the rules of the game. So if they're going to give us subsidies, we're going to take the subsidies, because if we didn't, that would be like playing basketball and not taking three points, because you disagree with the three-point rule. We're not going to do that. Well, okay, so there's an answer for you from Coke Industries. It does reflect the advantages of being the incumbent, and I can't emphasize enough, when I look out at the political landscape, you see this bitter, bitter, bitter dispute between the blue team and the red team, the Democrats and the Republicans. I mean, no holds barred, bitter dispute during the Obama era, particularly now during Trump, that, that leaves the government essentially handicapped, can't do anything. 
Well, in an environment where the government can't do anything, the entities that win every day are the entrenched incumbent players, the biggest of the big corporations that benefit from the status quo, and that's Coke. So Coke can get up and, and legitimately say, we are opposed to subsidies. Don't give subsidies to ethanol. Don't give subsidies to wind power. What they just don't have to bring up is the massive programs underlying their existing business as, as it exists today. So you can just sort of let that stuff go and continue to benefit from it. That, that's sort of how I, I think it works today. Did their perspective evolve as they, I mean, because they weren't, you know, 30 years ago, or were they? Uh, the Were they in that a similarly, were they similarly situated? They were, I think. I mean, from the very beginning in the 60s, oil refining, oil trading, oil processing, the fossil fuels business has been the bedrock of this company. Now, They've diversified dramatically. They're, they own Georgia Pacific. They're the third biggest nitrogen fertilizer company on planet Earth. They've grown a lot. And in fact, I mean, we can get into this, but I describe them as like a giant private equity firm now. They're just a big pool of cash looking to invest itself constantly to earn profits. But you can't deny at the heart of it is the fossil fuel business and then more broadly, these really complex, really expensive businesses that are at the foundation of modern civilization. Fuel, fertilizer, clothing material, building material, the sensors and electronics. Coke specializes in those kinds of business, and they have from the beginning. And also, I would say from the beginning, Charles Koch has had his very firm anti-government views that he's been pushing for. And it's all it, it, it illustrates itself in get the government out of, out of our business, you know, fewer regulations, lower taxes, um, no regulations on greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. That's how it tends to exhibit itself. Um, let's just talk about a little bit of uh, the work that they have done in attacking and demonizing uh, unions. Um, and, and we should also say that, I mean, you, it's interesting because you, um, you, you give them, uh, they, they apparently were pioneers in this, um, and I, I want to start with this, uh, with um, the, the way they track their warehouse employees. Because I spoke, um, I interviewed uh, a woman who, who had spent some time working at Amazon and had talked about this, the, that, that happens there, that they, uh, the, the tracking of employees at every, literally every 60 seconds, they have to clock into the thing. That many of that dynamic was in many ways pioneered by the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers practiced this to the hilt. And I am so grateful you brought this up. It's a huge part of the story that surprised me with how important it is. And uh, gosh, you look at the history of it. You know, back when Charles Koch took over his company, 33% of Americans in the private sector workforce were in a labor union. That had an enormous effect on the entire economy. Because even non-union shops, the owners were scared that the workers would unionize. This was the era in America that stands apart as the time when, when we had economic growth, people gained. You know, we're ending now about a decade of economic expansion, and the vast majority of Americans have not even advanced one bit economically, okay? They're taking on debt. Their wages haven't significantly increased. That's not how things were. The book shows labor unions had their problems. We've got to be real honest about that. They used intimidation. They used violence. There was corruption. Okay, that's real. 
But let's look at what life is like today. You know, and I spent years reporting on Koch's factories where these labor unions are being beaten back and taken apart. You brought up a perfect example. Without the labor unions being powerful, Koch dictates what the work life is like. And these employees at this warehouse, in particular in Portland, spend 10 hours a day being told what to do by the minute by the software system. But even worse, a few years ago, Koch would publicly post the employee's performance as tracked by the software system. And so it literally you know, divided and conquered the workforce by making them compete against each other every week. And the low performers on that chart would be disciplined or fired. So they're systematically dividing workers against each other. And I, I got the labor union contracts for these employees going back to the 70s, and it shows they're earning less money today than they did in the 1980s when you adjust for inflation. So they're working harder. They're getting paid less. And that, that's really the story of the American worker today. And, and Coke reflects that, and it also drives that. I mean, they've been working across the country to dismantle and disempower labor unions for decades, and it's been working. You were talking about an alternative to the Coke from the other side of the perspective. Do you see one of those? And the second part of the question is, David just died. Charles is getting old. What do you see? Is Chase going to continue what Charles is doing? So, Okay, thank you so much. And I apologize if my answers are a little long. I think most of the – I, I kind of want to make this more of a conversation. So, okay, a few questions there. Is there, is there an alternative to the Coke network – you know, the American political influence system is like super volatile and crazy right now. You've got the Mercer donors out there on the Bannon America first train. You've got the Soros uh, network. Um, I do think it's a bit of a false equivalency to say that the Soros network is the equivalent of the Coke campaign. The dollar figures just don't match up. The, the Coke network gives so much more and, and drives it so much more. So then you asked this important question. David Coke just passed away. He owned 40% of Coke Industries. He was sort of an equal partner in this political machine that they've built. What happens now? Where do we go in the future? And you, Well, first of all, I would like to say David Coke was not a significant driving figure in the story of Cokeland. Well, I would sit in the basement of executives in Wichita, Kansas, interviewing them about Coke Industries for a long time. People did not bring up David Coke. Uh, he lived over here on the East Coast. He lived the very public life of a billionaire philanthropist. He got a lot of attention. Meanwhile, Charles Koch was back home in Wichita, briskly building a private corporate empire. So Charles Koch drove the train. David Koch passing away, as personally tragic as it is for his loved ones and his family, it won't have an operational or tactical impact on either the company or the political network. What will is when Charles Koch steps away. Charles Koch has a son born, I think, in 1977 named Chase Koch. There's a chapter in the book called The Education of Chase Koch. When this kid was born, 
somebody hung up a banner in corporate headquarters that said, welcome crown prince. That's, that's, that's the burden he's lived under his whole life. Charles Koch on Sundays would make this poor kid, frankly, listen to these economic lectures in the study, the family study. He cultivated Chase. Chase has gotten a, an education in this institution that is unrivaled. I think Chase will be CEO one day, although there might be an interim CEO in the middle. And the huge question hanging over this is what is Chase Koch going to do? Is he going to be the fighter that his father was on these libertarian causes? Is he going to be the driving force that, uh, you know, made a company so giant? I don't know. You know, all of Chase Koch's initial forays into politics appear to reflect his father's belief system. But Charles Koch was sort of a once-in-a-generation fighter. The prologue of the book is called The Fighter. He has a spine of steel, unmovable ideology, and I don't know if his son is going to be the same. And it's just a question mark. I, I don't know is, is the short answer. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing the business of Coke Industries and the benefits of long-term thinking. The Young Turks explained why all of their seemingly principled libertarian principles are really just about corruption. The Chauncey DeVega Show explained the workings of the Coke political network built to facilitate their anti-democratic corruption. We heard a piece of the Real News Network's documentary about the Kochs with a focus on their systematized climate denialism. Start Making Sense added more to the climate denial topic. The Chauncey DeVega Show discussed the libertarianism of Koch's worldview. The Majority Report dove into the harm done to workers specifically by the Koch system of management. And finally, we just heard Christopher Leonard on Live from Politics and Prose discussing the uncertainty of the future for the Koch empire under inevitable new leadership. Members this week will hear additional details and get a bit more into the weeds on the functioning of the Koch political machine, more on climate denial, and more on the hand they've played in crushing unions within the company. Plus, more voicemails for members. We've been discussing recently various theories of change in a world in which the Supreme Court can no longer be counted on to uphold civil liberties, as well as one of the fundamental debates of the Trump era is political comedy, uh, satire in particular, dead for a generation because it is simply impossible to satirize a reality as bizarre as ours. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. Catching up a little bit after I was away on vacation, and uh, so I'm not in quite as much of a time warp as Dave from Olympia, but I'm still leaving a message about a slightly older episode, specifically episode 1300. I feel like that one was sort of, Aaron needs to leave a voicemail bait, considering the subject of D.A. Krasner. Uh, and also, thank you, Dave from Olympia, for the compliment. I do, I too feel like you are one of the voicemail community that I very much look forward to hearing from. So I hope you'll join us in the present and sometime not too far from now. Regarding Larry Krasner, first of all, I was really proud that we were able to get him elected here in Philadelphia. I did some canvassing in my area for him. He did 
some town halls in my neighborhood, which is a majority African-American neighborhood. And he really got grilled by a lot of my neighbors. There were a lot of people who had a lot of really tough questions for him, and he had a lot of answers. And I was really impressed with that, which is what led me to want to volunteer. So I don't usually subscribe to the idea that if the person has made the right enemies, that must mean they're doing the right thing. You can make enemies on all sides because you're just a terrible person. But in his case, if you look at how much the head of the local police union, uh, if it's John McNesby, is after him. I mean, there are billboards on I-95 in Northeast Philly, which is where historically a lot of the police families live, that are just really lighting out for Larry Krasner. It's really something. And it's not hard to see why in a lot of cases. Uh, First of all, this police, particular police union here in Philly was the first one in the country to endorse Trump, which should tell you a lot. One of the things I don't think came up in the podcast, but I think is a great policy that Krasner has instituted here is that officers with a history of repeated misconduct are no longer called to be witnesses in court. Basically, if they are known to fabricate evidence or if they're known to have a history of brutality claims or or this or that other thing, he just won't call them. He actually has what he calls his do not call list, which has really pissed off the police union, which you can imagine. And I, I think it's pretty telling about the police union, if nothing else, that that's their stance on it. He's had some big problems to clear up. His predecessor has gone to jail. I don't know if he's out yet for corruption, taking bribes, and so on and so forth. He's not doing everything right. There has been an article in the local news this week that he has not, in fact, ramped down civil asset forfeitures, which was one of his signature issues for campaigning. But he is working hard to get rid of cash bail. Uh, In fact, I think has eliminated it. So it's a mixed bag, but I do really think we're headed in the right direction. And another very high-profile thing that just got wrapped up recently was uh, after something like 20 years on probation, probably not 20, after, but at least 10 years on probation, which is absurd, Meek Mill, a rap star, was finally allowed to just get on with his life. The DA's office finally settled with him and said, all right, you know, you've served your time. We are going to just basically call it off that... um, Uh, If you're interested in more about that case, there's a documentary out there called Free Meek. You can look it up. I believe it's on streaming services. But essentially, I mean, this guy was just put on probation for so long. And this judge really just seemed to have it in for him. I mean, guy's a rapper. He had to apply for permission just to even go to New York City because it's out of the state of Pennsylvania to do a show. I mean, they were just waiting for him to step a a millimeter out of line so they could throw him back in jail. And that finally all got cleared up. And, you know, granted, it's easier to get justice if you're rich and famous. But I feel like that also sets a tone like this is this is the kind of thing that's going on in the city right now. So, like I said, 
really glad to see him highlighted. Glad people are getting good news out of my city. Doesn't seem to happen a lot, especially if all you know about us is our reputation as sports fans. So just wanted to throw in some local knowledge about that subject. Keep up the great work and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And thanks especially to Aaron, who we just heard from. If you uh, like what you heard which I think you did because she always has thoughtful, insightful things to say. Uh, You may be interested to know that she's a member and calls in pretty frequently to the members-only bonus show, uh, including the one for this week. So we'll be hearing more from her uh, over on the member side this week. Uh, So just a couple of quick things for you today. Uh, The first is to let you know that there will be no new episode coming up uh, at the end of this week on Friday. We're taking a few days off because we are uh, traveling to Philadelphia as we do this time every year. There's a a fundraiser 5k and a symposium that we attend for long-term listeners. You may recall for anyone new, I'll let you know that Amanda who helps with the show uh, also happens to be my girlfriend. Girlfriend first helps with the show. Second, Uh, she has a rare disease called a desmoid tumor. And so she uh, not only works with, but we fundraise for and and attend this this uh, meeting and, and 5K each year f- to support the Desmoid Tumor Research Foundation, DTRF. And uh, so, so that's what's happening at the end of this week. If you are interested in learning more or you would like to donate to Amanda's team, uh, you know, we have a, a, a small but mighty team. You can just go to runningforanswers.org, click the donate button, and then our team is Team Panda. Panda being Amanda's nickname since she was a kid, Amanda Panda. You get it. There will also be a link in the show notes to help you find that. And and the the elevator pitch for uh, what a desmoid tumor is is uh, it's not it's not quite cancer. It doesn't metastasize and spread through the body, but it's locally aggressive. And depending on where it is in your body can do a lot of damage. It could damage organs. It could, uh, you know, damage limbs. I mean, really, wherever it is, it's not, it's not going to be good. Uh, Amanda's happens to be in her leg. So it's, you know, it's one of the better places that it could be, but a lot of people uh, suffer chronic pain, uh, you know, chronic, uh, well, you know, I I guess you could say chronic (laughs) doctor visits, uh, surgeries, chemotherapies, and, you know, it can can hang around in people for years, decades. Amanda's had hers for like 12 or 14 years, you know, somewhere in that range. And there's not exactly like light at the end of the tunnel yet. So uh, the Research Foundation is constantly looking for new cures and, uh, you know, drugs that could be developed and and, uh, different various therapies for the community. It's, as I said, it's a rare disease about uh, something like two to four people in a million will develop desmoid tumors. And so on one hand, there are plenty of people around the world suffering with it. But on the other, it's really hard to get attention for it. Therefore, it's hard to get money for it. Therefore, it's hard to 
research and find cures for it. And so that's what fundraisers like this are about. So again, uh, if you want to check that out or donate, runningforanswers.org and ours uh, and our team is Team Panda. Second note today is uh, I've been thinking ahead about the election. Obviously, the primaries are coming up first, but the general will be coming hot on its heels. And so I, I have less of a comment right now and more of a question, which is, you know, a, lo- a lot of progressives after 2016 thought, I didn't do enough. I want to do more next time. And I wanted to start the conversation now about what we can do as a show to help you, the listener, do more. And I'll I'll tell you what I, just a sketch outline. So some of the most effective things that anyone can do to volunteer for a political campaign is voter contact, whether that's helping to register people, contacting people directly, in person, online, text messages, uh, phone banking, that sort of thing, making contact with people, keeping the election at the top of their mind, encouraging them to vote the way we want them to vote, and then helping facilitate them actually getting to the polls. That's the get out the vote GOTV that uh, happens towards the end of the campaign. So that sort of stable of activities is, is some of the most effective stuff you can do. Way more effective than signing petitions, way more effective than a lot of things people do. But so, so that's where a lot of the focus goes. And so, you know, sure, you can sign up directly with a campaign and they will plug you into a system that helps you do those sort of things. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I wish existed. And I'm hoping one of you can tell me uh, whether it does or not. If, if you've heard this sort of thing be talked about on another show, you've heard someone be interviewed about a, a you know new strategy to uh, sort of empower the, the grassroots to take action on their own. Uh, I would love to hear any suggestions, but like here, here's what I wish existed, which which might, but I just haven't heard of it. So you know, if you go to someone's campaign website, uh, you know Elizabeth Warren or whoever, and you say you want to volunteer, they will plug you into a system where you can help phone bank. Uh, send text messages, use a specialized uh, campaign app to help coordinate people and, and you know, in- engage in that sort of voter contact that I was discussing. And what I wish existed was like that, but for subgroups so that, for instance, Best of the Left could have sort of their own sort of plug-in that allowed us to get a little bit of feedback on our effectiveness. If, if we wanted to encourage people to get engaged and make phone calls or send text messages or do voter registration, if there was a way that we could get any level of feedback just to know how effective we were being, then that would create a beneficial feedback loop where I could report back, you know, good news, we've had 150 people sign up and th- those people have sent, you know, a thousand text messages or whatever, whatever the metrics ended up being, so that I could report that back to the listeners, which would then create a feedback loop of having more listeners be excited about engaging in this collective action. And I just don't know if that level of sort of grassroots distribution exists in those kinds of systems. There are definitely apps that, you know, help you call Congress. There are apps that help you engage directly in in a campaign and you answer 
directly to the campaign, but if a group, you know, so best of left kind of is a group, we have a group of listeners who I can hear from and talk to, but if you're a grassroots organization and, uh, you know, you and your group of, you know, your neighborhood activists want to have sort of that uh, to enjoy that sort of friendly competition amongst peers, not just amongst the throng of thousands and thousands of volunteers, but in your own group, have a little competition with your your friends about you know who's sent the most text messages, who's who's encouraged the most uh, voters, who's who's made the most phone calls, whatever. That that seems really powerful, which makes me think that someone else has probably had that idea too, and if it exists. I just want to know about it. I would, I would love to know how to plug into it. So that's my idea. If you've heard of something like that, please let me know. If you've ha- had other ideas or heard other ideas that I'm, I'm not touching or nowhere even close to, but you know, if you think it's a good idea, something that you think that we can do as a show to help encourage the greatest amount of electoral activism and engagement in the coming 12, 14 months, however long we have, that would be great. So I'm just starting the conversation now. I, I love any feedback you have. The, there's no such thing as a bad idea, except the really bad ideas, <laughs> as I heard someone say recently. So give me your thoughts. As always, uh, you can call in at 202-999-3991 if you want to really join the conversation. Of course, you can also just email me directly, j at bestofleft.com. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be doing my own research as well. But any help you could give, any any uh, directions you want to point me in, I would love to hear it. And now, finally, just right before I go, I want to remind you that Babbel is supporting today's episode. They are the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts and last only 10 to 15 minutes. And here are the easy steps to get you speaking a new language with confidence. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for absolutely free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Babel, speak a new language with confidence. And now that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.